I'm Tomer Cohen, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. In my new podcast, Building One, I interview some of the best product builders out there, people at the intersection of dreaming and building and learning. Together, you and I will learn from their experiences. If you're just as curious as I am, follow Building One wherever you listen and check out the conversation on LinkedIn. LinkedIn presents... Hi, welcome to the Startup of You podcast. I'm Ben Kaznoka, entrepreneur, author, and venture capitalist at Village Global. And I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn and host of the Masters of Scale podcast. And this podcast is about learning the secrets of how to have a great career. Because you may not be starting your own company right now, but you are the CEO of at least one startup, you. And Reid, today we're going to be talking about the art of the hustle, Entrepreneurs are sometimes defined as people who are relentlessly resourceful, people that will walk through walls, live on ramen noodles for years as they get their company off the ground. So when we think about the strategies and techniques that entrepreneurs employ when creating their businesses and applying those to careers, this is a body of work that's super relevant. If you want to be more entrepreneurial in your career, you can take a lot of inspiration from these entrepreneurs that do so much with so little. And, you know, one of the teams that you backed early in your formal venture career, Airbnb, had a pretty incredible journey of rejection and iteration and hustle. And they did a set of things that were super clever and creative in the early days, which I think embody what great hustle is all about. And wondering if we could just start by hearing a little bit about Brian Chesky and Co.'s efforts to raise money and stay alive in the 2008 presidential campaign. Brian, Joe, and Nate, three awesome entrepreneurs, you know, good friends. And part of what they did is they would go and they would pitch the business a lot. And basically everyone would go, I don't really see this as a business, et cetera. And it was like, okay, we'll we'll admit you because you got a lot of hustle, but they got tons and tons of no's, including to the point where, you know, they're literally raising money for Airbnb. Raising money for Airbnb. And which obviously today looks crazy given how successful and world transforming uh, that Airbnb is. But back then was the typical thing. And then so in 2008, they're running on fumes. They've maxed out credit cards. They're literally kind of living in an apartment by themselves and Airbnb being out a, a you know, kind of an air mattress in the living room when they need to in order to, to like make in their it own work. place. In their own have, place. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. And so they came up with a clever idea. They said, well, actually, in fact, along with these presidential campaigns are when the conventions come together are a time where it's a classic place where an Airbnb would be a, an awesome platform for everyone, awesome platform for the travelers because all the hotels are booked out and people are trying to get in, an awesome opportunity for the hosts because they're like, you know, even frankly, a couch or a air mattress in the living room, like there is no housing. So like you have a chance to make some more money with just that. And it could be a spare bedroom. It could be you're out of town. It could be renting the house. It could be all kinds of things. This is a canonical, you know, surge thing for Airbnb. And it could be the, oh, I, I saw it. It was really useful. It was awesome to me. Maybe I should become a host. Maybe I should, when I'm taking that vacation to you know Italy, maybe I should actually look for an Airbnb versus a hotel. It's an awesome customer development thing. And they said, well, how do we fund all this stuff and how to make it happen? And because you know, these are designers, which is the atypical, you know, with the Brian founders' Joe. backgrounds were yes. design. Yeah. And you know, Nate design. was CS, but the other was in uh, industrial design RISD, and, and RISD. Yeah. And it kind of tells the lie to, oh, everyone has to be a CS entrepreneur. It's like, no, no, no. Their design background was part of what gave them the creativity to create the things that were relevant to make Airbnb the magical surprise that it is. What they did is had 
Well, actually, in fact, one of the things we could do is we could make and sell cereal. We could have Obama's and Captain McCain's. What we'll do is we'll make a bunch of cereal boxes. We'll sell them at kind of like high-end tchotchke. I think it was like $40 a box or yeah, something. Obama's or like Cheerios, but Obama's. Yes, exactly. And then Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch, But, right. but Captain McCain's. God, I haven't had Captain Crunch in a long time. Yes. It sounds delicious. <laughs> keep going. You think you might find it's a little too sweet. But yeah. they did all that and they made a set of these boxes, spent a bunch of time hot gluing and everything else putting together because they were selling out like in just droves, which of course added to the capital balance, you know, also brought in experience like branding. It's like you're selling a product that people say, what's that? Oh, it's part of the Airbnb thing. So it became an artifact that was also a marketing artifact, just genius on lots and lots of levels, all the way to, you know, I know that one of President Obama's cherished kind of possessions is a uh, Obama O's that's signed by Brian, Joe, and Nate. Like a box of, a box cereal, of cereal signed yeah. by them is yeah. one of the things that they gave him after he was president so he could actually keep it. Everything, you know, when you're given as president because, you know, Obama is super high integrity, goes into the presidential stores. But this is one of the things they said, okay, you know, thank you. And and here is now finally, you know, years later, you know, after you winning the campaign is a thing. And it's one of the things he treasures as part of the, you know, his relationship with, you know, Brian, Joe, and Nate, who he also treasures his relationship with them. Well, it's amazing because today, you know, these are billionaire entrepreneurs with this massive business that's transformed the world. But it's easy to forget that in the early days, all these startup entrepreneurs have nothing, are respected by nobody, and they have to hustle in this kind of way to get their business off the ground. Let's just unpack the word hustle for a sec. Like, what do we mean when we talk about hustle? What is that word encompassing? What are the sub words or sub concepts? And, and there's kind of this funny thing on this topic that you know, you can be a hustler and you can have the skill of hustle. And there's some connotation about hustler that doesn't quite sound right to us, I think. What's the difference between hustle and hustler? Or what do you think of, Reed, when you think of hustle? And why do we get mixed up with this word hustler? By the way, there's a couple of words like this, with like also having a network and networker. networking yeah, versus networker, yeah, right? Yeah, as another yeah, one. Yeah. And I think it's because when it becomes the noun, it tends to embody the negative aspects of it. Mm. So like a hustler is, it's just about me. I don't care about you. I might try to take advantage of you. Yeah, slightly unethical maybe. Yeah, I'm not paying any attention to the dance between us of being really good for both of us. I'm just all about what it does for me. And so it's kind of like, you know, well, check your wallet when you're dealing with a hustler, you know, what's going on. When you're dealing with a networker, it's like, yeah, it's all about them. It isn't about us, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of it. Whereas having hustle is really good. It's the paying attention to serendipity, to opportunity, being able to pull resources in that might be unexpected, that you might find by serendipity, but also you might creatively pull something together. You might go, oh, well, if we're going to be doing these conventions and doing Airbnb for the conventions, how could we be really intense in the conventions? Well, we'll have cereal boxes. You know, There's no cereal boxes about Airbnb. It's a purely design creative idea that's also a marketing and branding idea. There's also a capital raising idea as you're doing it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as way, and, and so it puts it all together. That's hustle. But by the way, since there's no one who is hustled, right, there's no hustlers. It's just pure hustle. And, and having hustle is extremely important in entrepreneurship, extremely important in being the entrepreneur of your own career, because you're looking for those opportunities. You're looking for the thing that maybe you see that other people don't see, the way of putting things together, the way of taking a risk, the way of taking a jump or trying something that maybe other people don't see or are seeing an opportunity and building it. And that's obviously what entrepreneurs do in building companies, but also that, oh, if I go take that job, if I go work for that person, if I build that soft asset, that skill, 
that may suddenly open up a bunch of stuff that other people don't see. And that's having hustle. Love it. And, you know, in the book, Startup You, we break out a few different strategies and ideas for how people can cultivate this capacity for themselves. And the first strategy that we lay out is about being a cockroach or not taking no for an answer or not accepting rejection. And this is an interesting one because, of course, we'll get to sort of the instances where you sometimes do need to accept rejection. But I think fundamentally, so many entrepreneurs have the experience of forming a business talking to potential employees, investors, partners, customers, and having the door slammed in their face over and over and over again. I mean, any great founder has that experience of encountering all these doubters and oftentimes use those doubters as fuel and motivation. But the ability to get back up again and pitch again and try again is really remarkable. Years ago, I wrote the very first book I wrote, I remember pitching dozens and dozens and dozens of literary agents and publishers and getting rejected by every single one of them. And I actually still have all the rejection letters that I've kept all these years later. But it's just like over and over again, businesses I've created, pitching investors, rejection over and over and over again. You know, it's interesting to sort of unpack the psychology of dealing with rejection and mustering the confidence or chutzpah, whatever, to try again. And the amazing thing is if you can have some experience at rejection, and staying alive and trying again, it can actually create a sense of self-confidence that's really quite stunning. Like I assume Brian Chesky and the Airbnb team today feel like they can do almost anything because of what they went through. In a much smaller sense, I, I do feel like at this point in my life, I'm always like, if I actually really work hard at something, I think I can be successful at almost anything. Like I truly have that belief because I've had so many failures or rejection moments and I got back up and tried again, and ultimately it worked out. Or I learned something important to help me in the next thing I did. So I found it valuable in some way. By the way, I think entrepreneurs, myself included, by default, start with the, the first no is never dissuasive. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, sometimes a set of no's should be network intelligence and should be maybe modifying your path. And I'll get into the nuance of that in a moment. Because the really important thing is, as entrepreneurs, the vast majority of entrepreneurs will encounter lots and lots of no's. And by the way, part of, for the startup of you and being the entrepreneur of your own life is, in some sense, if you're not encountering some no's, you're not playing aggressively enough. You're not playing forward enough. You're not taking enough risks, right? You should encounter some no's. Not, you know, it depends a little bit on what you're doing and so forth. And this isn't saying, you know, you should just be like writing letters to every CEO saying, hire me as a vice president and getting a whole bunch of no's. That's not helpful, <laughs> right? And you're not learning from it. And that's what it gets key to is where can the, the experience of engaging and getting a no still be a learning moment, still be a, uh, build resilience moments, still be a learn something about yourself, learn something about the market, learn something about the industry, learn something about strategy, learn something about presentation, learn something about communications. Where is that moment where if I'm engaged in that and a no happens, I convert it into becoming stronger, advancing the project. And that learning moment from no's is really important. It's a, also a version of never waste a good crisis and crisis is opportunity. Now, was it Nietzsche who said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Yes. Okay. Yes. Although just... he was quoting like from the military school of life or something okay. like that. But yes, okay. it's, yeah. it is a Nietzsche aphorism. Okay. Because today most people attribute it to Kanye West, but they're, yes. they're rapper, but you know, we have to go back and find the original source quotation. But yeah, so that's kind of what you're saying, right? If what doesn't kill you makes you stronger through learning, yes. it can still be a worthwhile. Yes. Now, how do you, like, whether it be social net, even LinkedIn, PayPal, some of these sort of iconic experiences you've had, Reed, hasn't always been up and to the right. It hasn't been yes every time or even most times in the early days. How does one emotionally handle, is this just an inborn capability that some of us have and others don't? Or can we 
build sort of a resiliency? Well, you can definitely build a resiliency. And part of it is like, you know, kind of post-mortem the nose, talk to other people you know, life is a team sport, the eye of the we. Like, okay, so-and-so said no, so-and-so said no for these reasons. How should I interpret that? Part of it is you're talking to smart and helpful people in your network, uh, your friends, your allies, your colleagues. They may say, well, actually, in fact, that's a good point. You should really think about it. And maybe it hasn't surfaced before. That would increment it. They'd say, no, they just don't get it. It's a wrong fit. It's the wrong thing. Because sometimes they say no because like, they just don't have visibility. Like, for example, I said no to the angel round in Pinterest because I didn't understand the fact that these pin boards were a new medium type. How expensive of a mistake was that? Uh, I think... <laughs> I think that was a 20 million valued round and you have now an X billions. I don't, haven't checked the market. Is it 10? Is it whatever? Unforgivable. Yeah. So it's just like these are huge. And actually, by the way, one of the funny things is people tend to say, oh, you invested in X, you know, like company X, whatever that is. And that was a failure. Was that your biggest mistake? That's never the biggest mistake. The biggest mistake is passing on the amazing giants that became the amazing giants. That This is one of the things that's great about the tech investing business, which is your downside is the capital you put in. The upside could be multiples. And with that kind of asymmetric, now it doesn't mean take every bet. There's a lot of bets that don't work. But with that kind of thing, actually, in fact, if you applying some intelligence, have some network access, have some ability to do this, it becomes a very good investing you know, portfolio as part of doing that. And so those are the kinds of mistakes. Now, for me, uh, my very first startup, SocialNet, you know, my, well, along with my co-founder, Pat Farrell, we went out and pitched a whole bunch of different VCs because Pat had, by successfully founding GamePro Magazine, being its CEO, founding the Electronic Arts Expo Conference, which is like this huge gaming conference, had a great network. So we had access, we had all the doors. We went in a whole bunch of different VCs and they all told us no for coherent reasons. It's again, kind of network. So you pitched them on the new business idea yeah. and you got told no over and over again. No and over and over again. And then there was a thread in the network intelligence, which was, look, the business you're pitching us on does not have a lifetime value of the customers. You churn your customers in either success or failure. There's a limit to how valuable your business can get, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, that was a really good piece of intel in all these businesses. That's now something I've incorporated into how I think about businesses and what things do. And that puts a cap on how valuable your business can be if that's the characteristic of it. Part of the reason why things like LinkedIn are lifetime businesses, lifetime relationships with customer providing a lifetime relationship, a lifetime value, not just job seeking, but a whole wide variety of things. And also not just one job seeking, but all job seeking and all talent recruitment, and all the rest of this is part of how LinkedIn plays with all experiences from, oh boy, this whole intelligence thread that I was given that I ignored was dumb on my part. You know, we kind of broadened out. We said, we're not just dating, we're professional networking, which has gave me the LinkedIn idea. We're sports, we're finding tennis partners, we're roommates. All of that stuff came out of the generalization, but it didn't answer the fundamental thing. Now, the very last venture firm said, oh, we like the idea, but we think you're taking too much marketing risk. You should go partner with, you know, newspapers and we will fund you doing newspapers. In some sense, I think we took the money because we said, look, we think we really love this idea. We'll just take the money. We'll develop it. We'll, we'll show them. What we should have said is, well, we didn't necessarily really think that that approach would actually, in fact, really work. So, so just being sure I'm understanding, the, the firm that said yes was the very last firm you Very pitched. last firm. How yes. many firms did you pitch that said no? At least 20. So 20 no's, 21st yeah. is a yes. Yes. Okay. And literally, we had decided if this pitch doesn't work, we're going to go to on other things. Do you think when you walk into a meeting like that, it's kind of like the you have nothing to lose thing? I mean, do you think you handled yourself differently in that meeting or had a certain gutsiness to it of like, fuck it, this is it? 
you know? <laughs> you know, in retrospect, maybe, in part, like, being less, more relaxed about it, more just cards on the table, which is the way you should be when you're pitching, you know, investors anyway. You're like, you well, It's know, almost kind of like, the. it kind of reminds me of, like, the anti-sell and why the anti-sell. Yeah. So it's like, I don't even care if you want to invest. Frankly, don't invest. I don't, yeah. I don't be like, okay, I want to invest. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, because that whole thing of when, like people have a thing. Oh, if you're desperate, you must not be. Yeah, yeah must and maybe you're a hustler. This isn't yeah, hustler, etc. Yeah. Actually, it's a great point. Like, I think part of the problem with the hustler is the over eagerness. Yes. Like, if you have so much going for you, why are you so over the top? Yes. You know, on the hustle. And when we think about don't accept rejection, one of the things I think it's crucial to clarify is when somebody has said no to you and when somebody just hasn't responded to you. Yes. And in the modern economy, with email overload, etc. I hear from lots of people and myself who've experienced plenty of businesses where you're following up with somebody, you're reaching out to them, you don't get an answer one way or the other, and you have to decide, is the non-responsiveness a no or is it just non-responsiveness? And I'll tell a story of the creation of this book read and our own collaboration together after a lovely breakfast at Hobie's, I don't know, Palo Alto, or Palo Alto Cafe somewhere. I think it was Hobie's Town and Country. We had a lovely breakfast. We talked about working on Startup Review, first edition, you know, this is 12 years ago, perhaps, and developed a sort of a plan for collaboration. Over the next three or four months, in my follow-up to you to align on sort of the precise next steps, I failed to receive a response and probably sent, you know, five or six emails and there was no reply. And I remember thinking to myself, is the project off? You know, what's going on? You know, like we sort of had a, had a conversation, but we haven't codified precise next steps or what the real medium-term plan is going to be. And I actually got to a point where I thought to myself, okay, the project's off. Bummer. You know, excited about it, but not, not a huge deal. I thought, well, maybe, you know, Reed gets, Reed's a busy guy. Reed's probably getting tons of emails. There's probably a lot of people emailing Reed. Busy times. Yes. My first instinct was Reed saying no to this collaboration. Okay. Then I thought, wait, is that how I should interpret this? He's also, he's incredibly busy. He's getting all these emails. Maybe I should just make sure that it's a no or a yes or whatever. And so I called your assistant at the time out of the blue. And I said, hey, Paula, I, uh, I've sent, you know, read a few emails, just wanted to check in. I, you know, haven't heard back. So I just assume we're off. This is like around Christmas. So, you know, so I just want to make sure I was living in, I would move down to South America or something. I was just planning the rest of my next year. And she's like, oh, well, that's funny. Let me just, just hold on for one second. So I walk down the hallway and ask Reed about this. And so she walks down the hallway and comes back on the phone a minute later and says, um, oh, uh, Reed says, love to catch up with you. Why don't you come by next week in person and we can, you know, continue the conversation? I'm like, oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's great. I'll be back in the Bay Area. And so we stop by and, and put together uh, a work plan. Sometimes I reflect and I think, gosh, I had sent, and I didn't even send that many emails. I probably sent three or four emails. But I had this inaccurate narrative in my head that if someone doesn't reply to an email, it means that they're saying no, they're not interested, they don't like you, whatever. And I and this is pretty prevalent. I've talked to people, even myself now, sometimes people say, hey, I sent you those two emails. I just, I assume you're not interested. I'm like, I don't even remember getting your email. <laughs> like, you know, or I lost the email. I accidentally clicked archive or I, I thought I replied, it's stuck in my drafts folder. I mean, there are a million good reasons. I guess my lesson for myself and what I often now tell others is don't over-rotate on someone not responding. Yeah, and by the way, just to to understand that it's not like a kind of a social hierarchy thing, and so although obviously some people have much more overload in their boxes, I have the same thing. So like even as recently as this last week, I have occasionally gone, wait, I emailed so-and-so, I haven't heard back, (laughs) right? And similar to your pattern, what I've learned is not, oh, I haven't heard back because they're like piss off, not interested, et cetera. I just literally reforward the email and say, hey, I'm just, in case you missed this, you know, and, you know, hope everything's okay. 
<laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, well, it's actually, it's interesting. One of, I can't remember if we, I think we've spoken about this. I'm really intrigued by like this issue that some people have guilt over non-responsiveness. I've had this too, where, you know, entrepreneur, someone will follow up with me a few times and I'm like, uh, I should have replied to this earlier. And there's a procrastination effect, which has been my favorite portmanteau is, you know, procrastination and inflation where it becomes harder to respond and the guilt starts to pile up. If someone's replying on the same thread and I'm looking back at my Gmail, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is like the fourth follow-up in the same subject line. So putting myself in the other person's shoes, sometimes what I have done in the follow-up is I'll actually do a brand new email. I won't forward the old email and I'll allow the other person to almost encounter the interaction as a first interaction. And hey, they replied to me within 24 hours. That's great. <laughs> yes, because maybe they are also- They might have a paralysis yes. related to guilt because yes. they're like, oh my God, you sent me this email, what, three and a half weeks? Because then you start there, hey, so sorry for the slow response. Yes. It comes this whole apology yes. thing. <laughs> I frankly have enough of those that I should just have a little cut and paste of, apologies for getting back to oh you late. God. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey you, I'm Andrew Seaman. Do you want a new job? Or do you want to move forward in your career? Well, you should listen to my weekly show called Get Hired with Andrew Seaman. We talk about it all. And it's waiting for you, yes you, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about a second strategy, which is tweaking the approach. Sometimes the art of the hustle is just being creative about a slight reframe of how you're presenting yourself or presenting your idea. And we tell the story of Chris Saka in the book. Chris Saka is today a billionaire climate investor. But once upon a time, not too long ago, he was an unemployed lawyer with lots of student debt sneaking into the kitchen of event venues trying to break into effectively the tech industry events to network with people and see if he could cook up some sort of career opportunity. And his issue was he had a business card that just had his name on it, just Chris Ockett's name and a phone number and email address. And people weren't super impressed by that. So he had this kind of novel idea of inventing a consulting firm. I can't remember what the name was, but it sounded very consulting-y. The consulting firm employed one person, which was him. He didn't create an LLC. He just literally created the organization as a brand, put that brand on his business card, a fancy URL website, email address. And as he started giving out his business card at events, with this kind of business card, he got a lot more interest. A lot more people, oh, you must be a legit you know, consultant in business and technology. A small little tweak, but that made a big difference in terms of how people received him. And I do notice this is where I think people who are great at hustle do have this sort of creative sense about them. Like they know a clever way, even in terms of following up and trying to get someone's attention, like a clever way of gaining mind share and perhaps seeming more credible or seeming more exciting than they would otherwise. Well, I think there's... A bunch of different things that kind of go under the hustle thing, you know, not the least of which is, you know, invest in your LinkedIn profile because it is also where people find you and people will look you up. Look and, you up. Yeah. And most often now, probably it's the most common thing when people say, oh, this person, you know, who are they? What should I do? I'll look at their LinkedIn profile. Or I'm looking for people who are really, really good at, you know, kind of marketing NFTs. Who's really good at that? Well, I'll, I'll search on LinkedIn for that. You know, that kind of thing as, as a way of doing it. So there's a whole bunch of things. But I think within the hustle, it's how do you put your best foot forward? doesn't mean mislead, right? A consultant practice with employment of one with a website is not misleading. And doing the things where you go, ah, because by the way, that is substance, yeah. right? Which is the, you're on ball enough, you're careful about this, you're doing it with 
some intelligence about how you're presenting and how you're building your network and how you're interacting with your network as a way of doing it. And that that is how you put your best foot forward. Because so much of this book and this, all these ideas intersect with network. Yeah. So you talk about LinkedIn profile, but also I love this example of how do you apply hustle to how you build your network? Yes. And there's so many things here, but among others, it's like being a little bit more diligent and understanding the connection path to people you're trying to meet. Yes. So people who have good hustle, like when I think about the sorts of people I interact with who have great hustle, one of the things they do is like a founder we backed at Village Global just sent me a note the other day about Series A investors he wants to pitch. And he went through my entire LinkedIn graph and pulled out eight VCs that I'm connected to and said, how about this? How about this? How about this? I can write a affordable email for each subject line that like the whole best practices for how to get investor intros. And that level of hustle of there's a sort of proactiveness to it. There is a no task too small, like it's kind of grinding administrative work to go through someone's LinkedIn connections. But to do all that upfront on the receiving end of that just filled me with feelings of admiration and excitement to support this entrepreneur. Like it makes me think that he will be more successful in his business and life because of these small little things he's doing to make the process of expanding his network in this case be more successful. And what's more, you have a higher degree of confidence about making the intros to people because you know, well, he already applied this much diligence to this part of the process, Yeah. right? If he's going to be as diligent about the meeting and the prep and presenting well and everything else, because the mechanism I use on LinkedIn for when I introduce two people is, will both people thank me for the introduction even if an item of business doesn't happen? No, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, I met them. Not right for me, but thanks for the intro. Yeah. Right. And if that's what you want to be is where where the two people you're introducing are both like, thank you for that. Yeah. When I think about hustle and network building, it often shows up for me in doing advanced research. Mm. Like one thing that drives me crazy, I hope this is not too ego oriented, is like you meet I meet somebody who's seeking my time and attention. Like it's a little bit imbalanced and they haven't read the startup of you, read other sorts of things I've written and ask a whole set of questions that have I have or collaboratively written about in many different venues. And it drives me crazy. I'm kind of like, and I try to walk the walk on this myself, but if I'm seeking to build a relationship with somebody who I don't already know, to really voraciously consume whatever they have published already to show up to that interaction prepared. And so I think hustle can manifest as being great at information management and information seeking as it relates to building relationships. Let's now close by talking about the third strategy of hustle. So we've talked about not taking no for an answer, not accepting rejection. We've talked about tweaking the approach sometimes. It's a subtle reframe of how you present yourself that can open doors. A strategy we talk a lot about in the book, in fact, we have a whole chapter on it, Read is cultivating strategic serendipity. There's a lot of randomness in this world, a lot of things that, you know, especially in an entrepreneurial life, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We're going to try a lot of things. We're going to, we're going to be hustling. We're going to be building our network. And we're going to have to be excited about all of the uncertainty that might emerge from that, including the positive uncertainty, the positive randomness that could emerge. And I think you know, serendipity and hustle are related concepts, distinct but related. I think one of the things that people who are great at generating serendipity have is sort of this relentless curiosity, right? They don't always have an end in mind. They're kind of like, this is an interesting person to talk to. I'm not sure exactly where this is going to lead. Or this event sounds interesting. I'll try it one time, see what happens. I don't necessarily have a goal, but they're very proactive about putting themselves in unfamiliar places, meeting unfamiliar people. And I feel like, you know, Reed, you're, you're a great example of this. For so many years, for as long as I've known you, you've always had an openness to meeting new people, going to new sorts of things, talking to new sorts of companies. I feel like for a lot of people, as they achieve you know, astounding levels of success, they can become quite insular. And like, I know all the important people already. Like I, it's enough to keep up with all the people I already know. 
and they sort of really turn off that spigot of serendipity. But you seem to have been very intentional about keeping it open even after all these years. Well, I think there's lots of reasons. One is you should be an infinite learner. You should always be wanting to learn new things. And if you think you and the, the amazing people you already know know everything you need to know, it's huge foolishness. And so when you look at you know anything from you know Barry Diller and Brian Grazer to a whole stack of other people, Reed Hastings and so forth, they are infinite learners. They're always looking to learn. They're always you know kind of asking questions, kind of figuring out things. How to ask really good questions is a is a smart part of this. And so you always want to have some of that, you know, kind of serendipity on it. Now you may say, look, I'm really busy. I have lowered the, the bar gets higher. You're not looking for a bar of certainty. Like if you're not having an occasional meeting where you go, well, I was pretty useless. You're probably not being interestingly diverse and risky enough. Or it's a thing you told me, and I've written about this in my, my essay, 10,000 Hours with Hoffman, but if you're not making a mistake at least 20, 30% of the time, if you don't have foot faults 20, 30% of the time, you're not moving fast enough in your decision. Yes. Like, yes. You don't want 100% perfect decision making yes. out of somebody, right? Because that requires a slowness of speed that's yes. more broadly problematic. Yes, exactly. And so now, and, and part of it, you've expressed it in the right nuance, which is, look, foot faults, minor errors, great. Who cares? Yes. Major errors, be a little bit more careful yeah. on because they yeah. can be landmines. They can mm-hmm. be much more expensive. And look, sometimes you run into major errors, you miscalculated, it was an important big risk, but still as an emphasis on speed, if you're not embarrassed by your first product release, you've released too late, that's an emphasis on speed and learning. It's not an emphasis on embarrassment. It's on prioritizing speed and learning and not prioritizing a lack of embarrassment. If you're waiting until you're certain that you're making the right decision, you're making the decision too late. Exactly. Right. And so this all plays into the question of how do you hustle forward and how do you play? Because there are great entrepreneurs who think the only advantage of startups is speed. If you're not prioritizing on some speed of learning, some speed of decision making, some speed of execution, by the way, speed doesn't just apply to execution, it applies to decision making as well. If you're not prioritizing that, then you're almost certainly under-delivering how fast you could be learning, how you could be capitalizing, how you could be moving on strategic serendipity. And I think the thing with serendipity that's important is serendipity starts with saying yes to things. And this is kind of interesting meme, I feel like, in the productivity and success literature today, which is like really successful people know how to say no. Got to say no. That's how you manage your calendar. Say no, say no, say no. Focus, focus, focus. Philosophy of serendipity cuts against some of those principles a bit. It's kind of like, you're actually not quite sure if this is going to be a good use of time, but you say yes anyway. I think we can lose sight of that in the sort of modern productivity age, and especially as people become successful and they become managed, and they become managed in a way where it's like, you have these four priorities. Is this one of your four priorities? Doesn't make sense for you to do, right? Generally speaking, I think that's a good way of being productive in the world, but I would argue you should have always some openness to serendipity. And at certain times of your life, again, we talk a lot in the book about seasons of life, different seasons of life call for different strategies. If you're at a career transition or you're thinking about a career transition, turn up that spigot. Say yes to more conferences, events, gatherings, say yes to sort of random outbound or inbound that you might get. And then the last thing I think on serendipity that's important to remember is how, as with all these concepts, how to engage with your network. And so One of the things I like to think about sometimes is, you know, how can you add intentionality to serendipity? So I'm a huge fan of like, if you're in a career transition or thinking about a new job or frankly doing, trying to find someone to date, you know, have sort of a vague goal that doesn't have a specific deadline, share that intention out with your network. Like I like when I've gotten emails from friends or I respect it when someone says, hey, you know, I've been at the NFL for seven years. I'm thinking about a transition, no specific urgency, but just take, keep your ears and eyes open. If something's interesting, let me know. That to me is kind of like, 
lightly trying to engender serendipity, it increases the odds that if I bump into somebody that might be relevant to that person, maybe I'll remember them. And and you're kind of staying top of mind with your network to increase the odds of serendipity out of those first, second, and third degree connections. Yep. And I think part of the thing is on serendipity, like it's not the same thing as just saying totally random blindly. Like it's not like, well, just ask the person that you happen to be standing next to in a Starbucks line, let's go have coffee or something. <laughs> like it's it's serendipity of unknown, but it's with a possibility of something, like a better than average possibility of something really interesting. That's why a reference from a friend, that's why possibly at a conference that fits with your particular interest, I was saying tech conference because of the Chris Saka story, like other kinds of things. Is like, But to do that is actually in fact really, really good. And as you know, one of the places where I still do strategic serendipity, matter of fact, you and I um, at the relaunch of the Startup Review had an intellectuals dinner. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this would be a great opportunity to meet some other great American public intellectuals we both have a strong interest in. Let's go do that. And so we invited some people who we you know, hope will become new friends and, and did that as part of it. And that's serendipity. Fantastic conversation. Just to capture a few of the action items from our talk, we're talking about the art of the hustle. And so that first strategy we talked about of don't accept rejection, try to learn from it, but stick with it, power through. That's a, an essential life skill. We talked about tweaking your approach. So sometimes just slightly reframing how you're doing things can lead to a different sort of outcome. And as I think people who are great at hustle have that kind of creative instinct to break through the noise. And then finally, cultivating strategic serendipity. And so, you know, encourage folks to think about a couple things. One is, is there some serendipity you want to introduce in your life in the next, you know, next week, next month, next year? Is there a conference that you've been thinking about going to that doesn't seem perfectly relevant? Maybe it's worth signing up for. Maybe there's somebody in your network, maybe it's a secondary connection. They don't precisely work in your industry, but it's kind of adjacent. And maybe that person can introduce some new ideas. So just inventory a little bit of those opportunities. And then also as that action item, Think about instances where you felt rejected. Maybe you've written an email to someone, they didn't reply, and you assume that was rejection. And in fact, you just got lost in the email black hole. Have you yourself declared failure at certain things when in fact some thoughtful and graceful follow-up could turn that no answer into a yes or even a no into a yes? So maybe take a moment, take a few minutes and think about those instances and see if you can um, try again. And if you do that, you are truly embodying the startup review philosophy. Reed, thanks for the conversation. And listeners, thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you with your questions and comments. Post your thoughts on LinkedIn and be sure to tag us. We'll answer the best questions in future episodes. If you enjoyed the Startup Review podcast, please remember to rate and review us on whatever listening app you love. Join us next week as we continue talking about how to craft a remarkable career in the 21st century. Special final thanks to Jesse Hempel, Michael Nussbaum, and Dan Roth at LinkedIn. Our editor and executive producer is Aaron Schulman. Audio production by Palm Tree Island.